there's so many redundant tasks. You're sitting at the office, you're like, oh, I've got to do the same thing over and over and over again. And it just sucks the life out of you. You need to be focusing on developing and increasing, you know, your skill sets and making yourself more valuable. You know, not developing your skills and your time that few lines of code could actually be doing. So this one is about how do you automate key components in a business in a structured way that enables you to be free? I like to change the future of work in, in I guess, how the work's being done. So let's say, you know, people are at work and, and a, lo- a big portion of the work is very unfulfilling. It's really repetitive and they're doing things that don't really, don't really have a lot of meaning. And, and I guess, you know, one, one thing that I feel doesn't have meaning is stuff that's just really, you know, I guess maybe if you, I'm not, not developing checkout operators, but, you know, just scanning things that go through, that doesn't really increase your skill set, doesn't really increase, you know, I guess your, your brain simulation. You know, I, I want to transform work to be one that, all of his work to be one, to be, to only contain work that are, that's meaningful and ones that enhances your, your skill set. And doing the redundancies and actually start doing things you enjoy. All right, well, let's kick into it. So I, I guess any podcast, a good way to start is just to set the scene a little bit. So mm. what what would you say that you do? How would you encapsulate that? Um, I would say that I build robots, really affordable robots for small to medium-sized businesses um, at a really good rate. I mean, rates that normally people don't think is possible, but, but we have achieved it with our current business model. Boom, done. Mm. So let, let's go way back when. Where were you born? Where are you? Um, so I'm from Malaysia, uh, born and raised in Malaysia until I was about 12. Then I came over here, did my um, did some of my um, high school here. Then I did university at Auckland University, um, did accounting and finance and commercial law. Um, yeah, and then the rest is the rest of history. I'm working here full time. Oh yeah, well we'll get it. We'll get into the automation, the robot side of things. I, I find people quite interesting, and in, and what led to them being mm. where they are. What was Malaysia like? What were you sort of like in a, a middle class family? Was it hard, and you guys finally managed to get out? Was there any challenges, or why did um, you come to New Zealand? Yeah, well, look, we we are from so in Malaysia, we're from like a medium to upper class, right? But um, my parents thought that the education there wasn't as good as Western education, so we made that jump to move here. And obviously, when we moved here, Malaysia to New Zealand exchange rate was is pretty. I mean, it's pretty good for New Zealand, but for us, it's about divided by three. So when we came here, we yeah we were kind of mid to low class. So so that that did kind kind of contribute to me wanting to start this you know to start this some um, venture up. And obviously for me everything was about being thrifty, about being you know really money conscious. So that's part of like what drives me you know making giving ourselves options to so that we can yeah make better lives for ourselves. <laughs> so what was school like Did, was your english really good when you came and it was completely fine and there was no bullying and everyone um, loved you or? there was some bullying <laughs> yeah <laughs> some bullying. i mean look we, in malaysia look we we did grow up speaking english but you know in malaysia if, if you have any malaysian or singaporean friends you know we do have a bit of an accent so the first thing i did when i came here was try to get rid of that that kind of slang it's, it's more like a slang it's like an accent and a slang and yeah, I, I had to adjust it a little bit because I knew you know, when you were here, when you were going for interviews and you had to communicate, you kind of, you know, you had to get rid of it. Otherwise, people would be questioning, you know, why, why are you talking <laughs> the way you are? So, yeah, I tried to get rid of that as soon as I could. Um, yeah, and, and hopefully, you know, I mean, you, you guys might, might pick up a bit of the accent, you know, so you might pick up where I'm from. But I tried to get rid of most of it as soon as I came here. You did well. Did, were you were you good at school, or were you like a jock, or were you a, a, a rebel? <laughs> um, 
what was I? I mean, look, when, when we first came, I mean, look, I mean, be, being, being, you know, uh, I guess, uh, low to medium, middle class, you know, we didn't have a lot of options. So I, w- I was quite, I was so keen to start working. I was, and I, I, started, I was wanting to get a lot of, um, you know, options to myself. I wanted to buy my first car. So at 16, I was, you know, I, I was in high school, but I, I, I tried to work as much as I could, up to 20 hours um, on a part-time job. I was pushing trolleys at Bunnings, and um, yeah, and I managed. I made. I I got my first car, so I guess um, you know that car gave me a lot of options to you know do what I want. Was it was it hard to go from like you know being in this well-to-do family, but then coming here and not knowing anyone, and then being a little le- less fortunate than what you're used to? Um, I don't think so, because you know when I was younger, we didn't. You know, I I guess we moved here. I moved here when I was quite young. So back then I was still kind of developing, you know, my personality or my character. So, you know, I was, I, I kind of worked with the options that was given to me, you know, obviously no pocket money. I wanted to do all these things, but, and, and the way I could get it was through, through working. And in fact, you know, back then when I started pushing trolleys, this may seem really little, but the minimum wage was about $9.50. But for me, it, it was a lot of money. So, you know, when I worked, the, I got my first paycheck, you know, I had, um, I think that week I worked eight hours. And man, I felt like uh, I felt like I had so much money, you know, I think it was $80 at the time. And I, and I could go out and spend, you know, like a king in countdown. So, but you know, I, um, but yeah, look, I didn't have any, any, um, you know, I didn't have any trouble adapting, you know, I, I just felt, you know, it was a really good option. In, in Malaysia, the, there's almost no minimum wage. And in fact, the the wage if you went out to do waiting tables in Malaysia was about um, I think three or four ringgit, which is about two dollars here <laughs> back then. Wow! So so I did feel like nine dollars was a lot. Did you notice anything different when you came? Like culturally, is it similar? Is it boring? Like a lot of people, especially come this vibrant, colorful, amazing place. You come to New Zealand, it's slow, mm. it's it's peaceful, but it's also boring. You know? What yeah, I mean, I mean it, it is. It, well, I, find, I did find it a lot slower, and and in fact, you know when. <laughs> In Malaysia, it's quite common that when you, when you, you know, at 11, 11 or 12 a.m., you know, you still go out with your friends. Mainly, I think, because of the climate. First of all, the climate, you know, it's really hot. So when you're at nighttime, you'd be, you know, you, you'd still be quite awake. And when you go out to eat, the food is so cheap. It's only about one New Zealand dollar for a bowl of noodles. So, you know, everyone goes out to eat there, hardly cooks at home. So hmm. there was more of a nightlife. So wow, cool. It was cool. a bit slower here. Yeah, I find that, like, I've done some traveling. I only stopped in Malaysia, so we won't count it. But it, I don't know. The, to me, the competition, the bar of competition is pretty low. Like, mm. and, I, and I don't mean to shit on my fellow countrymen. It's just they want this work-life balance stuff, and I'm like, I don't really get it. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, everyone's just doing their 9 to 5, clock yeah. off. Yeah. What? Well, do, do you feel like there's some sort of ad- advantage you have from you know knowing that sort of hustle that fucking 11 12 yeah there, there was i mean look i mean even when i was back working corporate like you know everyone everyone they did they once the clock off nine to five and after that it was finished and even throughout the nine to five you know people i could see that if you're on a project there are people there are things that you could do to push a project a lot further but you know people weren't really that hungry they didn't really have that aggression to get something done so you know, for that in that case, you know, it was a lot easier for me to kind of push things forward than that that others before me, you know, didn't didn't manage to get across the line as fast. So yeah, in a way, when I when I first started working, you know, I, I found it quite easy to kind of get things done, and that helped my career progression quite a bit. Hmm. Then, <laughs> what do you think that is? What do you like? I mean, this is a dangerous, just a stereotype, but like, what what do you? Why do you think there is that big difference between like work life balance, slower nine to five? Mm. less competition is it 
cultural. Yeah, I think I think partly it's cultural because you know back I think in in Asian countries or Southeast Southeast Asian countries, you know we you have a lot there are a lot of there's a lot of competition not just with businesses but also with workers and employees. So people had to do anything they could to get ahead. I mean, nothing to get ahead to just maintain their job. So you know if you weren't high performing or you weren't kind of pushing things at a rate that your employer wanted to, you know, I guess you're out. So, you know, when you brought this same mindset here, suddenly, you know, you found it that, you know, you're doing the norm, but that was already, again, ahead of, you know, what normally people do here in their normal jobs. Hmm. So, yeah, I think it's partly cultural um, and also partly it's from background. You know, I, I kind of want I was I was in a rush to, I guess, earn my first paycheck and I get I guess get to the next higher pay rise. So, you know, for me, it was both the culture and also the drive to to, um, I guess, achieve more. You know, from my from my background. What do you think that comes from your drive to to you know achieve these big things? Because we talked off here about automation and that, but like, what what would be? What's your end goal? Like, if you had all the money in the world, no fear or responsibility, mm. and you could just wave a wand and you achieve this thing, what would you want it to say about your life? Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> so, so I guess I guess in for the, I guess if I zoom out and look at the big picture. You know, I guess being more financially secure gives you a lot of options in life. You know, let's say if you wanted to, if you think about Paris, you want to go there tomorrow, bang, you know, can you go there tomorrow? So, you know, that that's that's ultimately what I want. I want options that I can I can um, do with my life. And a lot of those options always are enabled with um, financial stability, right? So so when I came into this, I know jumping up, we're jumping around a bit here, but when I came onto this, you know, this problem that I knew I could solve, and, you know, I, and I guess, you know, that also gave me, you know, something I could do that was in line with my passion. Plus, it could give me these options I wanted. You know, I, I thought there was a really good match. And and that's proven to work really well so far. Okay. Well, let's go. So you, you did the corporate and you saw there was pain and now you're only working two days a week instead of five. What what are, what was your first moment? Like, you're going to start a business. Were you scared? Were you, were you confident? Were you like, did you put it off for months? What? <sighs> I wasn't. I was, so I was really itching to start, right? But but you know, in in uh, economical terms, you know, the opportunity cost of I guess going out by yourself is quite quite big. If you know, you, I guess the biggest opportunity cost is you lose your salary. So you know, you you know, if you go out by yourself, you don't get your your paycheck uh, week on week. So, but at the same time, I was actually really risk adverse. So you know, back back then, I already I I bought my first house and I already had a mortgage. So I thought, you know, can I have it all at the same time? Um, as pursuing this dream I have. So so I, I thought, yep, I think I can do it. So what I did was I, I still maintained my 9 to 5, but, you know, after 5 to, like, 12 a.m., I started working on my side hustle, right? So so that, that was a way that I could try to maintain my steady paycheck, but at the same time work on this dream that I have to um, to build some build something really big. Uh, what did you, like, what was your first step? What did you start doing? Because you obviously had some understanding because you're using it in your job. Mm-hmm. Did they know that you went from five to two days? <laughs> <laughs> I did. Look, I did. Actually, back then, I told my boss, I said, look, I've, I've all made all these reports. You know, they're all done with what, one click of a button. You know what I do? They, the boss just told me, look, just do what you're doing. Just make sure you get everything done. It doesn't matter how you do it. You know, and he was, he was pretty chill around that. So I was wow. pretty happy. So, so that back then, you know, the, the one or two years while I was in that role, you know, it, it, those three days gave me a lot of, um, capacity to build you know, what I was building so it was it was, a, it was a really good good match really wow so you're getting paid for five but doing two yep that's right that, uh, that was still my second job but you know I've had a few jobs since then 
<laughs> okay cool so all right see so what, what how did you start the ideation phase like how did you start processing how you're gonna create an offer mm. how you're gonna advertise it what what was your strategy initially um i i had i had to kind of pivot a few times i mean first of all when i started this this um, venture robot hub um the first thing i did was actually before i started this i actually tried, tried to create like this massive system there was a catch-all that could do everything right so i built this whole system from scratch but and then you know, i had all of these ma these really really good functions but you know i didn't really have a paying customer right so i kind of built this massive piece of um software but you know the the you know there wasn't any customers to back it up so then the next time i tried the same venture around you know, this was across the span of about five years you know i started a few during my full-time job but the next time around i said look i'm not going to build a single thing until i get a customer that wants the product Right. So I, I put aside some advertising money and, you know, when, when I got some leads coming in, they gave me their problems. And then I built a solution for that particular problem only. Right. Um, and yeah, that, that's, wor that's worked well for the first um, two years of, of a robot hub. Um, since then, we've kind of created more scalable products. Huh. What, what was your what were you advertising on? What, what were you putting your money? Um, it was LinkedIn. So LinkedIn. Oh, yeah. yeah. LinkedIn. <laughs> It's all LinkedIn advertising. Um, but you know, since then, I think you know we're getting a bit more um more results from Facebook. So we're gonna try pivot there a bit more. First. Yeah, instant forms. Yeah. So since they don't even have to leave the website, they just put their um details uh, yeah. straight in. And it's um you can go broad targeting just because the the AI's knows, mm. so you don't have to actually do much. It's like it's similar to your experience at work. A couple mm. clicks and it's done. Yeah. But anyways, yep. uh, <laughs> I've just <laughs> been learning about it because. Oh, uh okay so and then what did you have to learn how to sell and stuff like that or you, you learn things you're good at and things you weren't good um, at <laughs> i mean I, I was quite fortunate because when while i was in, in my days in corporate i um i i did have to work with a lot of stakeholders so the stakeholders mean the ones that need need the software or whatever i was doing so i had to kind of talk to them quite regularly and figure out what their pain points were and then i had to go back to my team back then you know when i was in in corporate i was also running um I was also working with a lot of software developers to actually build a product. So, so I kind of already was doing that in my day job. Um, so I, you know, so that kind of allowed me to relate to them, you know, really easily, and and then you know, kind of figure out their requirements, and then and then um, build it for them. So, so I haven't really done a lot of the, the actual selling. You know, a lot of the selling usually happens while the lead is being generated. Once they come through to us, usually they're already sold on it. So I I hardly do any one-on-one -on -one selling. Uh, and a lot of clients now are true referrals, so I haven't had to build much on that selling pitch site hmm. yet. <laughs> but um, that's something that we are, we will be keen to go into. Um, but yeah, so far, you know, we're just busy building, building stuff and doing a good job. Doing, yeah, I mean, it's the most leveraged activity is referrals. If mm. you get one person in, and then they get one person, that person, and there's mm. no cost. Yep. If you know how to do it, it's, mm. it's a bit of an art. Eh? I've been looking into it. I went to an event, um, yep. half a million people registered for it. Oh, yeah. And it was a pre book launch. Oh, wow. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> and it was a book, it was a pre book launch about how to get more leads. Wow. So, in, <laughs> and he basically used all the concepts in the book to get 500,000 people to turn up. Oh, wow. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it's interesting. And I've been going all in on it and trying to understand a little bit more because a lot of, uh people in the service industry especially they they're great relationship builders but the outreach is quite a fearful thing yeah that's true i mean look we, we did try our go at having doing a lot of cold calling and you know 
obviously when you first try it, it's quite discouraging. People <laughs> hang up on you. And look, I understand because you know when I get cold calls, I hang up on them too. Yeah, so yeah. you know, and, and I just figured, look, look, if there was the way, if that was the way for us to build the business, then. I'm not the one to do it. Or you know, if I'm the one to do it, I need to kind of build up maybe a thicker skin to actually create that. So so yeah, um but but you know, so we kind of pivoted more towards um the you know the digital advertising. So, you know, when they click through, they're already sold on it. Um but look if you know we, we do see the need to go into that, you know, that whole you know, the cold the cold calls, the selling and the pitches. But yeah, just just not the stage because we already have enough work lined up for us. Yeah, no, fair. I mean it's a bit of an art it's like it makes your business more sellable and protected mm. to have some sort of outreach. It doesn't necessarily have to be cold call. It could be any form of outreach, but it's mm. just the your 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 success is influenced by how much the platform charges for ads. Yeah, that's right. And so that's that's why, like, if someone was to buy your business and you do an exit, then having an outbound team is quite useful, according to other people. Yeah, uh, not me. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just a one man band. Yeah. Um. So okay, let's go on automation. What what's what what have your learnings been in like the biggest return on investment in a business when they just realize oh this needs to be automated and then it, it has a big impact? Okay, um, I can describe one that I I guess one that was the best use case I've had. So so there's this company that 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 I I need to account, I haven't asked them if I can broadcast, so I'm just gonna <laughs> just describe it. Enormously. Okay, yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah so um. There's this company, you know, I, I came in, you know, and, and my role as a more of a contractor consultant was to actually look at ways I could automate the business and I guess build a solution for them. So so there's this one company I came in and there were about there about um I think there were six to, six to twelve people in their processing team. Um and, and I, I literally spent three months building a product, right? And I once I built a solution, six of those FTEs were were gone. I mean, not not in a bad. I mean, look, it's it's that it was because all of those all of those um staff were actually processing stuff that could be automated by a robot or by like a piece of software. So I went in three months, and then I I and that automation resulted in six people's roles actually being able to be made available, and they could just be placed in other areas in the business. So yeah, so three months. Six um, roles available. Six roles, yeah, in six roles. <laughs> Is that so, a way of saying they fi- they were fired? Or um, they? <laughs> uh, I, I will. Yeah, I, may have, I will not <laughs> confirm that. But yeah, I mean, look, it just means that you know that capacity immediately. You know, because I had like they had a fresh pair of eyes that could look across it, and also because I already had the expertise to both analyze a problem and to develop a solution that c- could actually solve that problem. I could do it within um, three months, um, and and the bi- our biggest. And the biggest enabler for me to do that is because I know all the technology. You know, I actually talk to the end user directly, and I could implement that without having any third party involvement. So you, normally, a solution you have to you have to contact like a software development company. They might contact like a front end development. They might do back end development. So you know, I learned the whole stack. I could actually deliver. You know, uh, I could um actually scope, deliver, and execute all in the same at the same time without reliance on anyone. And and usually that's the biggest the biggest issue in corporate nowadays. You know, if you want to automate a certain task, there are just too many parties involved. And by the time you get to the end, you know, you end up wasting like three or four months in scoping and another three or four months in development. Uh, and even before that, you know, after scoping, <clears throat> you need to get that dollar value across the line um, with your budget holders to actually carry that out. And then even after it's been done, you need to make sure all those specs are actually achieved. So I could bypass all that because I could actually develop um, scope and also deliver all at the same time. 
so that was that, that's what kind of makes us you know so so um makes us delivering so quickly you know we have our internal capability to everything so what what leads to other people not having that as their business you know what i mean like how come you can do it did you take some more risk with you know or you outsource or what's what's your what's enabled you to do that um well it's it's just it's because i like personally myself i i'm not i'm not afraid to actually go and learn the skills required to actually get things done so you know so when i first started my career i was an accountant right so in accountants usually you deal with spreadsheets you do a lot of numbers but beyond the spreadsheets i i was willing to actually take a step further to learn more so in um, for all you accountants out there you might know excel and in excel there's actually a, a section in there called um vba macros you can actually build rap macros to automate things you do on the spreadsheet so i i actually actually didn't mind getting my hands dirty to actually learn that really really intensively and then then to learn this the next skill and the next skill and the next so you know i i learned um front end and i learned back end development and databases and before and and what once i learned all of that i could actually deliver the whole um solution end to end so so that that's really the the biggest points the biggest point i could do it you know but even if you outsource you kind of need to know what the outsource person is actually doing to deliver your solution otherwise you know you might end up with a totally different solution than you than you asked for and then you might end up like three or four months behind and then you have wasted all of this development money so you know you, you having having um your hands directly into the work that you're doing is what's really important for for me to be able to deliver things really quickly do, do you think that you're gonna come up against a few challenges when you can't be the person if that makes sense yeah so yeah i guess you're you're kind of referring to delegation right um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, How do yeah you go exactly yeah. so look so over the last three years you know we've had a lot of client work come in and you know i've i've always tried i've always tried to to surround myself with people around me that could i could um pass work off to um some cases i've been really successful some cases you know it's actually ended up even worse off after delegating it and i've ended up taking it back in so so yeah, look, I it's it's a tricky one. You need to balance that because on one hand you have you know you know that you could you could deliver this piece of work in like three hours, whereas if you delegated, it might take like four or five days. Um, but on the other hand, you know you can't really you know do everything yourself. You need to learn to delegate. So so I'm I'm doing I'm doing half and half. So I've, I'm identifying areas that I know I can delegate pretty well that they can actually. I know that the skill set is is suitable to deliver that piece of work. I'll delegate that and the other bits that i know that it's a little bit more complicated requires more oversight i'll just keep that within what i do mm, yeah. so you're a busy man huh yeah yeah <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> it's, it's hard it's hard to delegate that that's the that's well, truth of it what, what do you think is the hard because it's a common trait you know it's a, mm. a ceiling in a way for entrepreneurs is being able to trust yeah that yeah. and and even if it takes 10 people to do your outcome mm. but then your price point doesn't allow you to hire lots of people yeah, I guess that, that's true yeah so I guess you know it, it's kind of a chicken and egg issue right so you have all these big corporates that have these really big contracts with bigger companies and then you know here you are trying to undercut them at a fraction of your price and then deliver the same same product so so you know once so you know I, I found it a lot easier once I had a lot more clients and a lot more ongoing revenue to to start creating these pockets where you could delegate certain areas of the business too so you know I, i'm really fortunate that i've already gotten to that point where i can start creating these pockets um, but before that i didn't really have any any other option you you have to actually do a lot of stuff yourself to get to that stage where you can you know start delegating because once you delegate you have to accept that you know your the, the workload is going to be done four or five times longer than you would you do it yourself but you know 
at the same time, if you're in the Grove, there's no way around it. You need to start working out how you delegate these these tasks. Interesting. What what makes you believe that that takes four to five times long? Because there's you know there's A players, there's specialists, mm. and if you're just, I guess, delegating a certain component. I know you're, you know, you're a technician, you care a lot more, you put a lot of effort, you probably mm. develop a skill set not many people have. Yep. You, well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, one, one I guess, the, I, I guess because in software development, you have, let's say you wanted to get one function done. Let's say you wanted um, the software to, I guess, lift this cup from one area to the other, right? So in order to do that, the, it couldn't involve like one component, it couldn't involve eight components of, of the solution. So it could be the database that you need to add another field to. It could be the front end you need to develop a few more buttons. It could be the back end that you need to handle how the front end communicates. So, so, so immediately I've already identified three components. It's really hard to get like a developer that's across all three at the same time. And at the same time, the fourth component is, I guess, identifying that the solution is to move this cup from one position to the other, right? So for all of these, so so which means that you know if you have these four people that all have different skill sets. To get them all talking to each other, you need to first of all book a meeting, get them in a room, and then and then delegate those to each four. And each of those four need to del- need to choose when they can do those workloads each, right? But and and opposed to me, let's say I already knew I already knew how to do all these four. I didn't have to schedule a meeting. I could just open everything I need to get these four items done and just do it in the next half hour. So you can see immediately how how it's so much more effective if you could do everything yourself. It immediately cuts down five steps down to one single step. So yeah, so sometimes that's what you have to do if you want to deliver something really quickly. So at the moment, you know, we if you're in the startup stage, you don't have that luxury. You're gonna have to run really fast, really quick, and spit all of these um these executables out as soon as you can. Do you think do you think you ever increase prices or are you cuz that's another challenge is like if you charge a ridiculous amount of money and could justify it mm. then you could hire someone that could do everything at once. Mm-hmm. What 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 makes you want to keep the price low and will you change it? Yeah, look, I <laughs> that's something that's really against the whole reason why I started this oh, okay, business. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So look, if um I I really I rebel against the traditional way software development's being done. You know, you know when not, I'm looking when when I when I was in a big corporate, a software development firm would charge I'm looking six figures, just for a proof of concept for one particular task, right? And I knew I could deliver that you know just within like two weeks. So that six figures just for a proof of concept, just so I could go through all these really fancy consultations, these really big documents, and then like a really good you know really big um review process. That that's ridiculous. So you know I I don't abide to the hype because one I mean the big corporates have that money, right? But look it, it's and you know it's up for you to want to grab that money, but you know at the same time you're kind of building for nothing. You're building for air. You're building for like an inefficient process that doesn't have to be. So, so look, I don't think I'll ever get to the point where where um I'll I'll increase the prices anywhere near um what the big corporates are charging. But um but what we'll do is if big corporates came to us, we will say look we can do this for these prices, but we will try to maybe fix a longer term or maybe um maybe fix a. a a variety of heaps of processes so that you, we have continuity of revenue. But at the same time, our prices will still be the same levels of what we charge our small to medium medium businesses. Hmm. So so look, no, I, I wouldn't do that because it's against what, why I started this business in the first place. What, what if, like, would you feel comfortable if, let's say, you had, let's say, a team of 50 mm-hmm. and they all had a division of labor where they did a specific component and there was all clear communication to deliver a mm. very fast outcome. So instead of months of scope, mm. 
you just you turn up to the client you say hey this is 100 grand mm. but we deliver it next month mm. and obviously there's iterations and it's tricky and there's all that but mm. like would you feel comfortable with that yeah 100 percent. yeah i mean look if that but and 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 but then you know, it's a lot easier said than done because if you have all of these let's say you have these team of 20 developers right you know how how often do you get them to have spare capacity every single week to you know drop everything and just deliver it there and then? I mean, you could create a you could create, um, uh, I guess like a work like a a way of working there. You know that you always make sure that your developers always have maybe twenty or thirty percent free every week. That you know if new work came in, you know they're always available to do, to do it. Um, but also the other thing is you want to try and make sure that this this you know this this. Um, culture of fast delivery is maintained because when you get to a few hierarchies of um, you know your soft development team, sometimes you have team leads and then you have seniors and juniors. Sometimes if if one of those tasks requires the junior to do it, and you and and your meeting only consists of the senior developers, it might take a while for that work to trickle down to the juniors to actually get it done. So so and and this happens with a lot of software development companies or even with internal IT teams you always have a few layers which is why your work gets done so slowly so it really takes a drive from the top to make sure that look you get everyone in the room you need to have the culture that if you're senior if you tell the work um, to the senior the senior needs to either get it done himself or if he delegates it to the junior um, they need to make sure that the junior delivers it you know within a day or you know of a time frame you need it to be so that culture needs to be driven from the top and I'll be the one to drive the culture if I mean, I would say when we get to that point. Okay, so so it's less about price for you. It's more about like not wasting time doing bullshit stuff. Yeah, exactly. I'll swear you don't have to. <laughs> um, okay, so so this automation part, is it that you incorporate existing software? Is you building it from scratch? Is it a software you've made? What, what's sort of your process for creating something? Um, so we, we usually act as um, middleware. So usually the company already has some software that they're using, for example, Zero or the accounting system. We would develop middleware in between to process um, maybe their documents or certain information to push into their their system. So I mean, we identify how we do it initially when we first talk to the client. Sometimes the client doesn't even have that uh, software to start with. Some say using just Excel or just emails, which is which is terrible. So if they don't have the software, we will build it for them. But if already if they already do and they are lacking some sort of automation, we will create we will build the automation part and then push it into the next step of their. Your software, your software hmm. stack. Just if this, um, I just had to push this button randomly okay. so that it keeps going. <laughs> sure. uh, okay, so you got the, you. I mean, that's useful. You got a lot of these legacy technologies, and you know they've got the system, and it doesn't communicate with this other one. And if mm. you can pull your system on top of theirs without them having to do change management and convince people to do everything different, mm-hmm. what, what do people say when you like you're doing these robots for them? Or what, what are they like? Oh. Are you sure? Like I talked to a guy before. He he's quantum gravity or something. Quantum. I think. Quantum. Yeah, it's quantum. called. Yeah. Yep. And he he was talking about how he had to get a robot for this health company. Oh uh, yep. And then they wanted a robot to check the robot because they didn't trust the robot. <laughs> what, what sort of things do you get with your thing? Um, I mean, look. I think to get a robot to check. I mean that. Then then I reckon it's a fault of the first robot whoever built the first robot to not have built in those checks. I mean, there's no reason to build look if if they if the client if you if the client itself is asking you to build a robot to check your own robot, then I guess you've done very well in your marketing because then you can build for another robot, right? But in in my view that is that the first robot should be enhanced or or their capability should be increased to make sure that they do the checking of their own work. 
So so that's more of I feel that that's more of a pricing gimmick that they've built into the customer to to accept. So they they probably got the customer to accept that look the first robot will always have issues and they'll have errors and you have to live with it and that's how we're just going to bill you this way because there's no way to solve it. But if they're saying that another robot can can check and solve those errors, it means that the first robot could actually have flag up those errors in the first place and just created another process to send it back to the client to to solve. So so I guess, you know, that company out there, that's really ripped <laughs> off. <laughs> Jeez. Well, I, 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 in his defense, essentially you were saying it was more of a behavioral thing. So it wasn't so much that the robot wasn't doing its job as that they didn't trust it mm. and needed reassurance. And then what he found is that he, they actually found anomalies in the way that the people were um, mm. inputting stuff. Mm. But I don't know your experience with them. Maybe you don't want to <laughs> I only met him on the podcast. Oh, um yeah. Okay, so yeah, so have you ever had sort of weird feedback of people that aren't necessarily technologically savvy? Like, um, you mean in terms <laughs> of the, the actual, you mean before we actually implemented or? Yeah, like they're mistrusting of the like robot. They're like, oh, you know, how do I know it's not going to send something on my behalf? Or what, what are the yeah. fears people have? Well, I mean, mostly the people that come to us are the ones that want, already want the change, right? Oh, yeah. So after, you know, so you should, so I, I guess. We will meet some, I guess, people who kind of, I guess, are a bit of a roadblock or have more concerns. So that usually happens while we try to implement it, right? And and when we encounter these people within the business, we, you know, a lot of our role is not just to develop software. We need to sometimes even create some sort of assurance for current business users that the robot's going to run well. So, and and that's you know that that really goes out of software development towards more, I guess, change management and I guess. Um, I guess stakeholder you know, convincing that you know the you know things are going to be are running well. So I guess the big, the bigger concerns are that you know look are they they don't say it but they might think look are, is this robot going to replace my job? You know are they going to actually be made redundant like the other places? So you know what what we try to say is that look the robot's only there to take away um, repetitive boring tasks from you. So you know if if all if all you're doing is just data entry from one from paper to like your system, robot just does that. Uh, it doesn't mean that there won't be work for you. So let's say the robot puts the data from the paper to the system. You you could actually you know you could actually pivot your role to from data entry to actually checking you know to actually doing more value added tasks. For example, you know once it's on the system, you could say look oh these these customers you know have a certain you know uh you know from between different age ranges. Then you could actually go down the track and say look we're getting a lot of applications from this age range. You know I think we should. I guess change our marketing to suit that. So, so you see that's something that a robot wouldn't be able to do. The robot's just putting data from the paper to the system. But you know, if if that would if that task would be taken away, you could actually look for more value added um, roles. For example, I mean, what I described was more analysis of the data, not the data entry. So immediately you're being taken away from data entry, and you have time to actually analyze the data for your the stakeholder down the line. So, so look, you shouldn't be afraid of a robot taking a role. You should be looking at this as an opportunity for you to upskill. And make yourself more valuable in the company. Hey, well said. You got my vote. You could do poli- politics. <laughs> Except for those six people that were never to be seen again. <laughs> Nada. What, what, yeah. what do you think? Like, so obviously, you know, there's been lots of technological advancements and people, jobs have changed. People haven't lost jobs as mm. such. Where do you think the low hanging fruit is? Like, what jobs are going to get revolutionized the quickest? With um, automation. I would say ones that have a lot of repetition, a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, I guess the the ones that the processes are really really straightforward. So you know it goes from you know four or five steps that don't change. 
um, and have very little exceptions. I mean, if you have a few exceptions and if the exceptions are easily handled with another process, you know, those will also be easily to, easy to be automated. But the ones that I guess are harder to automate are the ones that you need a lot more human feedback, a lot of human analysis, ones that you know, require maybe a person-to-person uh, touch which means you know like communicating to your stakeholders like you know talking to managers talking to uh, clients those are the stuff that robots wouldn't be able to take over mm. Mm. what, what do, you, do you have any fears like yours is a little different but we were talking about language processing natural language processing models or whatever you call them yeah. in our, is it NLP I think. Uh, no yeah GPT Chat GPT. Oh, na- oh, natural language. Yeah, natural language. Yeah, that's that's natural language. So, Chat GPT is actually built on um, GPT, which in itself is a machine learning model. Um, so, Chat meaning you know you first of all interpret what the users type in, and then then you put it into the model. So, so it's a layer on top of an existing AI model. So, um, yeah, that 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 could be really useful for for items that already have a lot of data available. And in this case, Chat GPT already script a lot of data from the internet. So if if the data from the internet is accurate and there's a lot of data on it, ChatGPT most likely will be able to to give you those answers. Yeah. And in fact what there was once I was trying to solve like an issue on a particular programming library. You know, I spent about half an hour to one hour trying to solve it. And I thought, look, why not you know, I just thought, look, let's just put in the chat GPT, see what they say. And within like one minute, it, it, it spit out the same answer that I had to try and get within, you know, with the whole hour of research. So, yeah, so chat GPT actually does work, but you need to be really specific with the prompts that you feed into the feed into the, the interface. Are you using like um, GitHub Copilot and Code Interpreter yet? Um, no, I mean, the, the Copilot, I mean, a lot of those are they're just, they're just auto-fill. So if, if the Copilot has access to all of your other code base, then it's, it really helps with coding faster with, you know, one or two lines of coding. Um, yeah, but I guess it would take a bit bit of time to get used to. Um, but yeah, that, 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 that's a good application of uh, AI within just coding, the coding space itself too. Do you, do, you, do you get worried about the, the future? Do you ever think like Terminator vibes or anything like that? What, do you have concerns about the advancement of technology and AI? Yeah, I mean, look, it's really easy. Like for me, I'm, I'm really good at joining a lot of dots from start to finish. So usually when I when I develop a solution, I can see the problem, I can see the, the software and, and coding libraries I need to actually get done, and I can see how it's delivered. So... And in this case with AI, I, I can see it, it. It's just we're only one, we're only one click away from actually having AI being applied in really dangerous situations. For example, you know, if if you put the AI in charge of, let's say, a marketing algorithm that that you know that's you know I, I'm not sure maybe aimed at gun products, right? And if if the AI kind of identify who's really susceptible to actually wanting to own the gun and wanting to fire a gun, and if that's the only the only um the only prompt that the AI need want that the that the human gets AI to look at, you know, and if you don't put any age limits, what if, what if like a five-year-old, you know, they identify that five-year-old really likes to fire a gun, you know, would they start marketing it to the five-year-old? And, you know, you know, a worst case scenario, if the five-year-old has a credit card of their, their parents, what if they ordered the gun to, to um, their, their family home? You know, so that, that could be a one really potential danger of AI. You know, if you, you don't specify what prompts you put into it and it just gets, it gets run without any filters, um, on the internet so and these things could be unintentional i mean the the person advertising those guns might not actually have intent or thought through how the ai is going to do the marketing they could have just said look ai give me more sales and then the sales come in but you know the unintended uh, consequences is you know these five fields are being marketed guns 
Um, and if you apply it to even a bigger scale, you know, what if it's around, you know, politics, you know, if you, you want to get someone that's on the line to vote left or right, you know, they're, they're just a lot of ways that AI could actually influence a lot of areas within our lives. So it could be quite dangerous. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I don't, the, a lot of humans I come across don't tend to know why they make decisions much. Mm. Even I, like I'm obsessive over self-awareness and stuff and I mm. often don't know why I chose something. Mm. And you think about this huge data set that yep. they have and the ability to interpret, you know, they're going to mm. make decisions. You talked about advertising, like yep. how good is that stuff getting? It's insane. Yeah. It's big. So what's the dream, man? What's the outcome? What will we all work? You obviously said freedom of choice, but what would you like your company to look like in 10 years or five years or whatever? Well, look, I, I kind of want to change the way um, people work. So um, in, in corporate terms, there's a lot of talk around future of work and how the future of work, work looks like, you know, and the subjects, they're, you know, in, in a lot of areas in the future of work is it could be around a lot of different areas, could be around know work-life balance you know your work from home that's one big thing i guess how you do performance reviews and how you communicate to your managers and in fact there was also talk about your manager not being a person it could be an ai that just that just sets kpis for you and and ticks off how you achieve it and if you achieve it you get your pay rise if you don't and, and sometimes there could be a better experience than i guess human managers some human managers are pretty pretty bad at leading um teams so so for me um, I, I like to change the future of work in, in I guess, how the work's been done. So let's say, you know, people are at work and, and a, lo- a big portion of the work is very unfulfilling. It's really repetitive and they're doing things that don't really don't really have a lot of meaning. And and I guess, you know, one, one thing that I feel doesn't have meaning is stuff that's just really, you know, I guess maybe if you, I'm not, not developing checkout operators, but, you know, just scanning things that go through that doesn't really increase your skill set. doesn't really increase, you know, I guess your, your brain stimulation. You know, I, I want to transform work to be one that all of his work to be one to be, to only contain work that are, that's meaningful and ones that enhances your, your skill set. So you, we are, I want to leave all of the manual repetitive stuff down to um, lines of code instead of humans because you know humans you know you need to be focusing on developing and increasing you know your skill sets and making yourself more valuable you know not developing your skills and your time that few lines of code could actually be doing there was um there's something i've seen it was quite interesting where they they had this camera mm. observe uh watching bar- baristas mm. and also uh clients mm. and the baristas were had a green box around them and the number of coffees that they'd made oh yeah so it was tracking their performance of how, how good they are at making coffee. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And you make a point there. It's interesting. Like, on one hand, I would hate the idea of the confronting nature of, you know, like, hey, they're watching me. But then also there's so much variance in the quality of management and leadership and it's, it's not necessarily fair. Mm-hmm. So may, maybe how do you think people interpret being watched like that? You know what I mean? Like having them tracked and the repetitive tasks removed. Yeah, I mean, I mean the, the tracking bit. Look, if let, let's say let's say the barista example. Let's say if if I mean the baristas exist because I'm um, theoretically they I mean they, they create better coffee. Okay? Oh, so let, you're say, coming for them, bro. <laughs> okay, okay. Baristas <laughs> make better coffee, but I'm saying, look, what what if there was a stage where like an espresso machine or maybe. You know, and I saw and I saw an example of um I think in Tokyo they created like an arm that that mimics like what a barista does it you know it it it, cha- it um mess it changes it just uses the an, an actual express machine to actually froth the milk to actually um, grind the beans and then pause in front of you and and it's just a robotic arm right so you know 
how how is if if they could actually make that robotic arm stimulate the exact same things that the bracelet does, um, you know, and if quality is the same, you know, what's the value of the bracelet actually doing? I mean, look, let, let's say the robotic arm was free, <laughs> and and if the electricity was kind of free, would you then would the bracelet be still want to actually do those those manual actions, or would they rather just you know pay for electricity and have the robot do it? You know, and that's that's a question that you know if if you put it really plainly. It, it should be it should be the late the later right <laughs> you want the robot to do your work for you and if you can still get paid for the same amount of coffees that the robot produces then technically there shouldn't be any reason why you wouldn't want to use arm and if you get the same compensation the issue is when that compensation actually goes not to you if it goes back to the cafe owner right so i i guess then it, then the question is you know how do we control the distribution of wealth from this automation so that that's a bigger question and you know are these automations putting more people out of jobs in my view, it should really shift people from doing, you know, I guess my first point, from doing mundane roles to more value-added roles. For example, barista. If you actually replace the making coffee process with a robot arm, the barista could be actually in front of house talking to the customers, asking, you know, how's your coffee? I guess building rapport and making doing things that the customer actually enjoys, like, you know, talking about their day, something that retains customers, right? I mean, some people like being talked to, some people don't, so <laughs> I'll leave that up to the business. But, you know, the fact is, the barista could actually now be doing something that's a bit different to something repetitive. There's, uh, I think, a, a startup in America um, that took off, and it did something similar. It, just the way they made coffee was much more efficient, which allowed them to hire less staff but pay them more mm. and have smaller spaces because they didn't need these big-ass things. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's merit in that, mate. You know what I want? If you ever have time to build it, now. <laughs> it has nothing to do with what you're doing. But, like, it would be so good if you just had a smart kitchen that you, let's say you're trying to achieve a certain dietary requirement or a certain mm. way of eating, mm. and it will source all the food. It will get, it'll order it, it will get it, and then it will pack it into the fridge, and then it will mm. cook it. Yep. And then wash your dishes. Yep. So you're talking about automating <laughs> the restaurant industry, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because, you know, look, I, I, I love... I love preparing food myself because one, I can control like what, what tastes go inside, you know, maybe you like it more salty or less salty, you like, you know, more of this type of sauce. You know, and, and it's really hard to find a chef that does it how the way you, you like it to be without like being that pain in the ass customer, which goes and tells the chef what to do. <laughs> um, and yeah, and, and this is a way that I, I feel it's more efficient because, you know, if actually everything that you're doing in uh, going to a restaurant is, is you're paying for them actually having the ingredients on site. You're paying for them to actually cook it. So if you look at HelloFresh and and Whoop, for example, you know they they do all the ingredients gathering. They do all of the you know having the ingredients ready in a really um, format that you can actually cook straight away. And the reason why you know some of these um you know these um food pass companies do so well is because people actually love cooking fresh food in front of them and I guess changing the way they do it to their taste buds. So if you the the what you just described was automating you know groceries. The right amount of groceries and the right amount of quantities to make the meal that you want there and then. So that's what I guess um you know uh that's what um HelloFresh and these other companies are doing. The next step is actually you know are you willing to actually <laughs> do the cooking yourself? Nah, I don't yeah. want to cook. <laughs> that's, so that's the second bit you're paying for. With yeah. The restaurants. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, that, that's I mean that and like a dishwasher that actually washes the dishes. You know what I mean? Like mm. that that gets to me. Yeah, it's yeah. a dish rinser. It's yeah. you got to wash it just so exactly, you can do it again. Yeah. I mean, when you rinse a dish, you're you're almost two seconds away from actually doing the clean <laughs> onto the drying rack, right? So, so if you have to rinse it before it goes in the dishwasher, you know what? The, it's the redundant. Yeah, yeah, no, fucking worst invention ever. Anyway, so we're in the last part of this podcast. So maybe um, 
maybe we should go just a little bit more in depth on like automation and stuff so mm. what what are the most oft, often what are the problems you see most often that have you know a big impact on a business that you saw um so look we so you know, the I, I think for, before we I talked about you know building the solution only when the the client's asking for it right so we've been in business for about four years and you know we we've had uh, right now within the four years so many customers have asked for document scanning so document scanning meaning reading what's on the PDF or a physical document and putting into a nice format for it to be added to the next system so that that's that request has becomes become so common that about 60% of our revenue is actually from all from document scanning and and we and and we we have really we have really um, a lot of functions to to handle all sorts of documents you know even ones that have columns vertically horizontally you know we can actually make that into a really good format for it to be put to the next system so so we've automated a lot of document scanning um, tasks um, and you know, I think I think because mainly because that's hardest to actually do. You know, you, you have a unstructured data, and then you have that data that needs to be put to a next stage. Um, so, so yeah, so that that's that's most of that's what a lot of our clients have been asking for. Sorry, I kind of miss you. No, no, you're right. <laughs> that is perfect. Yeah, you know, having unstructured data and making it structured in a streamlined way. I get it. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, we've done the podcast. So, um, thanks for coming on, brother. Escape. No problem. <laughs> it's good to be here, right? <laughs> Easy.